You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. I stood there for at least a minute. My mouth was open. I'm sure I could not look away. I was absolutely overwhelmed by the beauty of what I was seeing. I was camping in western Pennsylvania, this kind of little hideout that I go to every once in a while. It's this trout stream out in the middle of nowhere, uh, the small campground that I was retreating to back in uh, last May and June, about a year and a half ago. And it was in the middle of the night, I got up to do what you do in the middle of the night when you go camping. And I stood up and I looked at the sky and I just couldn't believe it. There's no light pollution, there's no sound, there's nothing. And I could look up and see millions of stars. You'd actually see the band of the galaxy right over the campground. It was framed by pine trees, the bubbling of a trout stream right behind me. And it was absolutely beautiful. And in that moment, I was struck by a very odd sense of comfort. It was really kind of blindsided me because I was cold. I was in a strange place. I was tired. I was actually really grumpy because I missed last evening's trout rise because of a silly rainstorm. But there I stood, surprised by comfort. Comfort. We all want it. It's really hard to achieve, isn't it? Especially this year. I think comfort is profoundly, frustratingly elusive, isn't it? We can get comfort in a lot of ways. Some people look to self-soothe, controlling their situation, their environments, even their relationships. Others look for comfort by abdication, like letting go, giving up, burying your head under a blanket. Maybe some people look for comfort through distraction. Just keep me busy, keep me occupied so I don't have to whatever. See, the route we take to find comfort actually reveals a lot about ourselves. This morning, we're going to take a look at how God wants to comfort us, and it's not in the way that you might expect. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is one of my favorite chapters in all of God's Word, and it's the capstone of our five-week series called Preparing the Way, this deep dive into Jesus' life and the fulfilled prophecies of Isaiah. This past month, we've seen Jesus do some amazing things. He's opened the eyes of a blind man. He's defended a woman who is shamefully accused. And he struck up a conversation with a total stranger and a social outcast. We've looked at Isaiah's prophecies and seen how Jesus fulfills them, these dusty visions that he brings into high definition. Well, this morning is going to sound a little bit different. We're just going to be camping out in Isaiah 40. Chapter 40 is a hinge in Isaiah's book. He's done speaking up against sin, and now he's going to look out to a brighter future. His words are hope for the hopeless. They're a home for the lost, and they're rest for the exhausted. Isaiah 40 is tailor-made for turbulent times. Through four declarations Isaiah makes about this one-day future king, He says that God's people will find their ultimate comfort in Messiah. And in this beautiful chapter, Isaiah wants us to know that lasting comfort comes by building our passing lives around God's everlasting King. Lasting comfort comes by building our passing lives around God's everlasting King. So if you're not there already, 
get to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah starts out with words that everybody wants to hear. We're all dying to hear this. This is the news update that we've been waiting for, the broadcast that we are craving. And here's what he says, Isaiah chapter 40, verse one. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's over. It's done. You can be done now. Won't that be great to hear? Now, Isaiah is rooting his language in actual historical events. God's people have been at war. At this point, they're under siege from a neighboring kingdom, Assyria. They can't rest. They can't relax. They can't do what they want to do. And it's important to know that in their case, it's their sin that actually got them there. Now that's the bit about their sin being pardoned there at the end and receiving double blessing from the Lord. But it's done now, Isaiah says. It's over. He imagines a time when they can be at peace. We should have those classic images of World War II come to our minds here. Isaiah is imagining a time where this kind of stuff doesn't exist anymore. People will live in peace And like a trumpet from a distant mountaintop, Isaiah describes the announcement in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountaintop and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, here's what I love about this. Isaiah is clearly using some deeply poetic language. He's describing something very deep. God's not going to level literal mountains and hills. He's not going to raise up literal valleys for his king. He's not going to flatten literal rough places in preparation for his king. So what's he talking about here? Tell me, how does instability feel like? What has 2020 felt like? It's felt like a roller coaster, ups and downs, extremes, right? I even heard the word the other day, Corona coaster. This year just feels like ups and downs, back and forth, this manic, like, which way are we going? Like we even gesture this way. Okay, I do. We're up, we're down. And that's really life, isn't it? It's this series of uncontrollable wavering. Change comes and it knocks us out of equilibrium. We feel like captive to something that's beyond our control. The natural rhythms of our life can be exhausting, especially this year. And so like God's people here, what do we need? We need leveling (laughs) our own souls. Now here's the catch. Who does the leveling in verse four? Did you catch it? This is going to happen. Who does it? It's not you. You don't have to level your own soul. Isn't that good news? We can no more bring comfort to ourselves or self-soothe than you could calm waves on an ocean. And so with a leveled soul, a voice speaks up in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, but grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's a very interesting message. If you're going to try and bring people comfort, 
This is fascinating to me. You're going to bring hope to hopeless people. Here's what you might have expected. You might have expected God to say something like this. You know, it's okay. It's okay. Everything's going to be all right. Don't worry. You've got this. You can do it. But that's not what we get here, is it? That's not what God says. Instead, we get more of this poetic compare and contrast language. Isaiah says something like this. Because you know when a windstorm comes through and knocks all the leaves off of every tree? Do you know when your springtime June green grass turns to October, November brown? That, that's you. And we're going, well, what kind of comfort is that? I don't want to be reminded of how passing my life is, how inconsequential I am. What's Isaiah doing? As part of his preparatory vision for introducing this king, God, through the prophet Isaiah, wants to wants his people to understand something very clearly right up front. It's counterintuitive. It's not what they would have expected. And it's even initially not what they want to hear. But here it is. Lasting comfort never comes from celebrating our own greatness. It only comes by treasuring God's greatness. Our God is great. And this is this first declaration that he puts out here in these first six verses. God has designed this world with beautiful frailty. Flowers and grass, everything passes. It's heartbreaking, right? But nature is wonderfully savage, and we can see this. And Isaiah's truth bomb is that God designed it this way. Why? That in seeing the frailty and the passing nature of this world, that we would seek for something beyond it, that we would find our hope in him. Jesus Jesus even picks up on this in the Gospels where he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. And so here's Isaiah crying out to his people who are rocked by instability, haunted by inadequacy, and fearful of their insecurity. He's pleading with them, God wants to comfort you, not by telling you you've got this, you can do it, but by giving them a bigger version of himself, that God is great. Lasting comfort comes by building our passing lives around God's everlasting king, Now, Isaiah moves into his second declaration. Not only is God great, but God is strong. Let's pick things up in verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, this is the message intensified. Three commands. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities. This is Isaiah saying, look, I'm not just going to describe for you this king that's coming one day. It's like from his imaginary vantage point on his metaphorical mountaintop, he says, look, I can see him. Well, what's he like? Take a look in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Our God is strong. I love this because aside from being great poetry, this is jaw-dropping theology. So I hope you caught it. Verse 10, you've got this king who rides into town with might and a strong arm. His reward and recompense are with him. That's another way of saying he's got authority. We should imagine this king like a deep-voiced judge who acts with decisiveness, but also like this returning war hero with medals and stripes that testify to his heroism. 
This is like Rambo, Atticus Finch, and William Wallace all rolled into one. He saved his people from a terrible war, conquering an unseen enemy, and is victoriously bringing the truth home. The title right at the top of verse 10, Lord God, it's Adonai Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, it's only used when talking about God's victorious reign as a sovereign king. Got this like puffed out chest, strong God. But then... There's verse 11, and the volume turns down, and whatever victory prayed you might have imagined just fades away. Isaiah moves to describe a different and beautifully complementary aspect of this king. Tend his flock, gather his lambs, carry them, gently lead those that are with the young. And our metal-laden military hero, takes a job as a tender preschool worker. (laughs) This string of verbs, gathering, feeding, caring, leading, this encompasses every aspect of a shepherd in ancient times. And if one of them were missing, a shepherd wouldn't be doing his job. But then here's Isaiah presenting us this picture of our king, our shepherd, doing all four of these things. This is an intimate, close, trusting relationship that God has with his people. So strong versus tender. Which one is he? And here's what Isaiah wants us to see. Our king is always and forever both. We talked about this two weeks ago, that God must be great and he also must be profoundly good. And here in this beautiful two-verse pairing, we get this impossibly close, almost jarringly juxtaposed expression of two seemingly divergent postures. He has a strong arm to rule, but a tender arm to gather. He has a bold heart to conquer and a gentle heart to lead. He has courage for the strong, but then he has care for the vulnerable. Now, here's the thing. We love these images, right? These are the images that like movies are based around, right? Heroes are cast in this light. Great heroes who point the way with courage and then good heroes who care with compassion. But have you ever noticed we're really comfortable with a hero in a movie as long as it's a hero for somebody else. We don't like heroes when we need heroes. It's okay for you two, not for me. Me, I'll figure it out on my own. I can handle it. I can make it. I'll take care of it. (laughs) And there's this implicit understanding underneath this declaration that our God is strong. You may want to call yourself a self-made man or a self-made woman, but Jesus won't let you. (laughs) And so folding back to this initial call for comfort, Isaiah wants us to know again that lasting comfort comes by building our passing lives around God's everlasting King. Now at this point, Isaiah has sketched this king for us, rich in contrast, deep in imagery, hopeful in tone, but now the lens widens and the language becomes broader and Isaiah looks up and he lifts his eyes as high as he can as he makes his third declaration that God is sovereign. And he starts off with a series of four rhetorical questions, the kind of questions you're not supposed to really answer. And here he goes, take a look in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth with a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? 
who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Implied answer, no one. Sounds a little bit like Job here, doesn't it? And now he turns his attention to something that's really pressing for us in our day, and it was pressing for Isaiah's people in their day. National identity. Take a look in verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. What's the point? God doesn't see national boundaries in his sovereignty. He's concerned with one nation, one country, Israel, but the rest of the nations, they're a drop in the bucket. They're dust. Isaiah's even, like his words kind of get wrapped around the crank. He almost trips over them in verse 17 where he says, they're nothing. Actually, no, they're less than nothing. So praise God for your country. Just recognize it for what it is. Then, having asserted God's authority over the nations, he extends God's sovereignty by asking another question in verse 18. To whom will you then liken God or what likeness compare with him? Implied answer, nothing. But then he goes on to give us three scenarios. He says, an idol, a a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it for silver change, Chains, he who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. This is Isaiah's way of saying, there's no way you could even understand what God is like. You don't have a category to put him in. He's not like the lump of wood idols that you got from the desert. He's not like the ones from, that have gold and silver, like the ones you got from Babylon. He's incomparable. Four more rhetorical questions follow, which if you haven't picked up by now, Isaiah uses these rhetorical questions to prompt us to worship. Take a look in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Which is his way of saying, don't you get it? But now watch this poetic move in verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. What a beautiful, creative language to describe our God's sovereignty. And now he continues again because he wants to make sure we get this picture of this third declaration that our God is sovereign. Take a look at verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Just to be clear, verse 24 is talking about elections, inaugurations, and coronations when princes and kings, rulers and presidents ascend to power. And what's he say? He says they get there and they're gone. No sooner has their stem taken root in the earth, right? No sooner have they established their cabinet, put forward their policies. They see a little momentum and God blows on them and they wither. They're gone. They've lost their influence. You never hear from them again. Another way of expressing the same sentiment in Hebrew is to say that they're neutered. They have no power. They're carried off like stubble. Just as majestic and powerful as a tumbleweed blowing down Main Street. 
than lifting his eyes higher. Isaiah brings two more questions to the sovereignty conversation in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Now you can name a lot of things, but nothing names. Verse 26, he says, he brings out their host by number, (laughs) calling them by name. He's talking about stars and suns and planets and galaxies by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Again, you can name a lot of presidents. You can name a lot of princes. You could probably name a few kings, but not one of them hung the stars. Here's the point of Isaiah's third declaration around God's sovereignty. Lasting comfort only comes from worshiping God for only what he can do. You want to be comforted by Jesus? Don't pin your hopes on anything or anyone in this world. Don't even consider them. They're grasshoppers. They're withered flowers, stubble, nothing. And I know what's happening in your mind right now because it happens every time we get to this point. You go, well, I hear you, but those withered flowers and those grasshoppers sure have a way of yanking my life around. And yes, they do. And yes, they will. What did you expect? We ate from Eden's tree. Remember what Peter says. He says, live your lives here as foreigners. Why? Because you don't belong here. This isn't your home. Paul talks about that too. And then Peter even says, what's the most important thing about our years on earth? He answers it by saying this, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Another way to say that sentiment is make much of Jesus every day to everyone because our time is short and King Jesus reigns, period. We want to make this life count, but for one reason, because we live on mission for him. We are citizens of heaven and we are subjects of a king. Let's not forget to act like it. Isaiah has been trumpeting this for 800 years and we're 2,000 years after that. We rattle our cages and we shake our heads. We take our stand and we speak our mind. We fight our endless battles in a world of self-important grasshoppers. Lasting comfort comes by building our passing lives around God's everlasting King. And now Isaiah does what I love most. Right at the moment when we are tempted to detach, to throw up our hands and go, well, what's the point? Isaiah's fourth declaration comes like an unexpected gift because you've heard all this like drop in the bucket, grasshopper stubble, withering flower stuff, emptiness, nothing. And you might be tempted to go, well, okay, God's great, strong and sovereign, but it doesn't sound like he's that interested in me. Well, you're in for something amazing. Touching a tender pain point, naming a common fear and giving us what we need most. Isaiah's fourth declaration, God is personal. God is personal. So stop. Before we get into it, I want to sit with this for just a bit. We need to remember where God's people are, and we need to put ourselves in their position. Remember, they've got an enemy pounding at the door. There's no way out. They're hemmed in. They're trapped. They're homeless, and they're helpless. They're lost, alone, and forgotten. They're not where they want to be. They're not when they want to be. They're probably not even who they want to be. And Isaiah picks up on that feeling, in their case, very geographic, rooted, actual. And then he lifts it to the spiritual place, no less real, but deep, personal, and immediately relatable to us 2,800 years later. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, 
O Israel. Now I'm going to pause for a moment. Put your name in there. Why do you say and why do you speak? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Do you ever feel like that? Sure you do. I do sometimes. You feel like nobody sees you. Least of all, Almighty God, he's got other stuff to worry about. Like nobody knows you. You're disregarded, unseen. You're tired. You're ready to fall over. And so now with those thoughts percolating in our heads, let's get into this text. Isaiah asks two questions, makes four strong statements, and closes with a beautiful personal promise. Here's his questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? We've heard these before. He used them back in verse 21. They seem to suggest that the people ought to know better, and they should have. The entire Old Testament is built to teach God's people about what he's like. This is theology 101 kind of stuff. Maybe they were bringing God down to their level. Maybe they were imagining that he forgot about them. Or worse, maybe they thought that God just couldn't get them out of where they were. Maybe he's unable. And so Isaiah uses these questions to redirect their thinking. Haven't you been listening? You may think this way about God, but I need to give you some perception correction. And here comes his four strong statements. The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Let's take a look at these real quick. God is the everlasting God. He has no beginning and no end. So there's nothing he doesn't know. He was there in the blackness before anyone else was. He's already seen the whole parade of history unfold. There's never been a time when he wasn't. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Everything we see is created by, ordered by, and sustained by God. There's no people, group, or language he doesn't know. There's no place in this world that wouldn't be home for him. He is home everywhere in his created universe. The cosmos is his living room. His third statement, he doesn't faint or grow weary. Think about this. Holding the stars in place doesn't tire him out. He doesn't get muscle cramps from making oceans rise and clouds form. He doesn't get bored of sunrises and sunsets. Eight billion people on earth, all breathing in and out for, through their lungs. God sustains it all. And then lastly, he says his un understanding is unsearchable. That is to say, he knows exactly what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing. If you had a library full of books, you could spend a lifetime combing through the shelves and you'd never scratch the surface of what God knows about how his world operates. I love how the message interprets this section. Here's what it says. It says, God doesn't come and go. He lasts. He's the creator of all you see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out. He doesn't pause to catch his breath. He knows everything inside and out. But with all of this, this high, eternal, lofty picture of God, there's a promise. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And like all the other declarations he's made, this fourth declaration that God is personal, Isaiah lets this fourth principle naturally emerge that lasting comfort only comes 
by receiving from God what he is so eager to give. The God of the universe stoops. The eternal, creating, unwearied God kneels to see you. Lasting comfort comes from orienting our passing lives around God's everlasting king. So we've seen Isaiah make these four really strong poetic declarations, but they've got to go somewhere. If all this is about preparing the way for an ancient coming king, what's our part in this? Because we're 700 years to Jesus, and then we're 200 or 2,000 years from that. This king has a name. He has accomplished his task. He is now seated at God's right hand. And so here's how I want to wrap up today. I want to take these four declarations, and I want to ask four questions. Four declarations, and each one comes with a question. So, question number one. God is great. Do you know your limits? God is great. Do you know your limits? There's this old Latin phrase, memento mori. Literally, it means remember your death. And that sounds really morbid, a little dark, and probably something from an Edgar Allan Poe story. But here's the idea. We have limits. We are like a fading flower, withering grass, even the healthiest among us. We don't remember our death so we can become these like shriveled, somber shells of people who just kind of drift through life. We remember our death because we want to remember that life itself is a gift. It's a gift given by God, a good gift giver. And like most gifts, like the flower, like the grass, or any of the other metaphors in this chapter, life is passing. To remember that one day your heart is going to stop beating. And to know that your heavenly father has already appointed a day and a time for everyone. To know the limit of our lives humbles us, but it also emboldens us to live those lives well. If the word of the Lord stands forever, as Isaiah has said, shouldn't we align whatever length of years we've been given with his purposes and live our lives for his glory? And so that's the first question. God is great. Do you know your limits? Second question. God is strong. Have you surrendered? Have you surrendered? (laughs) If you've been listening, watching, or attending in person these past couple of weeks, you know we've seen Jesus meet people at the edge of their ability. He finds us in desperate places where only he knows what to do. We have to surrender to what he can do through our lives, not what we can do in our lives. We bow the knee so that he can lift us up. This strong-armed God can rescue you. And so the question is, are you okay not being a self-made man? Are you okay not being a self-made woman? Are you okay with the fact that your story is going to be about Jesus as the main character, not you? You only get a strong God if you can admit your weakness. This shepherd wants to care for you. Are you trying to fix your problems on your own, or will you let him lead you? So that's the second question. God is strong. Have you surrendered? Third, God is sovereign. Do you worship him? Right after the new year, we're going to start a teaching series called Healthy Habits, Five Practices for a Joyful Life. And one of them is going to be worship. Now, when you think about worship, I know what comes to your mind. You think about music, like this room behind me, there's a stage and instruments and microphones and this kind of a thing. 
That's part of it. But worship is way more than that. Did you catch never once in his 15 verse unloading about this third declaration, does Isaiah ever mention music? Ever. Basically, Isaiah just dumps his thoughts saying, here's what our God is worth. He's worth more than any national identity. He's worth more than any idol. We talked about that last week. He's worth more than any prince or power or president. There is no one like our God. He is worth more. And so the question, do you worship him? I'm not talking about singing or standing in this room or words. Does your life mirror back the fact that God is better than insert anything here? God is sovereign. Do you worship him? Fourth question. God is personal. Do you know him? I think it's interesting that Isaiah's closing words at the height of his eloquence in this chapter include the command to wait on the Lord. Ah, it's so hard. His king is coming and Isaiah has seen him like dust on the horizon. His audience didn't know how far away he'd be. We know in history it's 700 years to the birth of Jesus. But 700 years later, Jesus says enough. It's time started this series by sharing one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite Christmas hymns that says, let every heart prepare him room. And I want to close out this series by sharing another. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. I love the contrast between those two statements. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Our world is weary, isn't it? We are the faint. We are the ones who are about to give up. We have no strength. We thought we were young men in our prime, but we fall exhausted. And so this last question is probably the most poignant of all. God is personal. Isaiah makes it very clear. Do you know him? I don't think of a better time of year to actually get to know the God who created the universe, who flung stars and spins planets. He wants to know you. He's interested in you. He's inclined to you. He wants to hear from you. He came into this earth to grow up and to die for you. And so as we prepare the way for the Lord, really this is between you and him. Maybe you have some business to do with King Jesus. Maybe you have some stuff you need to clear out of your own heart, to prepare him room to work. And maybe it starts with just asking, okay, God, help me clear the way for you. Show me what's in the way. Reveal to me these things that are a hindrance to me being obedient and walking the walk that you want me to. I really believe that when we take a look at the passing nature of our lives, that we do well. If we're going to receive comfort comfort from this God of the universe, we orient our passing lives around this eternal, glorious, everlasting King. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this truth, this wonderful chapter, that you are a creating, eternal, never questioning God. You are sovereign. You are great. You are strong. You are sovereign and you are personal. And what a remarkable truth that you would be interested in us, sinners, (laughs) We've made a colossal wreck of our lives, either publicly or internally. We know the truth that the darkness is deep. But God, you are light. So shine your light into our hearts as we turn our hearts toward Advent. 
this wonderful month of December where we have dark nights. God, you are light. So shine your light into our hearts. We love you. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.